0: The next day opened a new scene at Longbourn. Mr Collins made his declaration in form. Having resolved to do it, I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet, and this is the Reading Jane Austen podcast. This week, we're looking at chapters 19 to 26 of Pride and Prejudice. Have you got a one-sentence summary, Harriet? Yes, though it's a bit long. Mr Collins proposes
1: to Elizabeth, who refuses him, then Charlotte, who makes him the happiest men by accepting. And the Bingley party leaves for London. But when Jane meets them while visiting the gardeners, she realises that Miss Bingley does not wish to continue the acquaintance. So by the end of this section, Elizabeth is distressed for Charlotte, angry with Miss Bingley, contemptuous of Mr Bingley, but curiously accepting of Wickham's pursuit of Miss King. So I've counted that up, and I've only got one and, and I've got one, two, three, four Jane Austenisms. So that actually gets me into the positives with plus three.
0: Well, I think I might have done almost as well this time okay. for a change. So mine goes, Elizabeth rejects Mr Collins because he could not make her happy. But Charlotte accepts him as her pleasantest preservation from want. While Jane is crossed in love when the Bingley's move to London. And Elizabeth promises her aunt that Wickham shall not be in love with me if I can prevent it. I have got an and there, and I've got one, two, three, four quotations. Okay, that's the same as me, plus three. So so we're... We're equal. We're equal, right. Did anything particularly strike you about these chapters? The whole proposal, you know, two proposal scenes, are sort of dealt with as high comedy, but they really tell you quite a lot about... Not so much what Jane Austen thought of marriage as what it was thought of in the period. And the thing that struck me was the way the word happiness keeps coming up. Happiness together seems to be the generally accepted criterion for choosing a marriage partner. Here's Elizabeth says, you could not make me happy. Mr Collins says, a man in my situation naturally looks for happiness in the married state. And Charlotte says, I'm convinced that my chance of happiness with him... And I counted up, and there were 74 mentions of happiness, and 56 of them are applied to marriage. Okay. The other Um, thing I counted up is, just in these chapters,
1: there are three times when Mr. Collins says that Charlotte is making him the happiest of men. Yes, so that's the same (laughs) word coming in, yes. Mm. And then Mr. Collins, when he's proposing to Elizabeth, he talks about his feelings, but... When she refuses, it's nothing about feelings and he's the reason he's surprised is because of material advantages. Yes. And, yeah, when he's, he's talking about Charlotte, it says his regard for her must be quite imaginary.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: so even though he's using the word happiness, is he really meaning that?
0: I'm assuming that this a mention of happiness is part of mm-hmm. the way you talk about marriage mm-hmm. at that date. So even though in many
1: cases, for all practical purposes, it was a... A marriage of
0: convenience. A marriage of convenience. Or an you, economic pact. You don't,
1: yeah, an economic pact. You don't say that. You talk about happiness.
0: Yes, you talk mm-hmm. about happiness. Yeah.
1: As you said, Mister Collins's proposal to Elizabeth is treated as high comedy. That Elizabeth always treats him with respect in that scene. Yes, she's not contemptuous of him. She she states her position very clearly but she doesn't abuse him or criticise him or even say, you're too stupid for me or anything like that. She says she would not toy with the feelings of a respectable man. Yes. She, as said, she treats him with great respect. On the other hand, she's had plenty of
0: time to prepare, <laughs> to prepare her refusal. <laughs> well, there's that. To, you know, to hone it up. <laughs> so, well, secondly, is that the very funniest bit for me is the scene where Mrs Bennett is trying to explain to Mr Collins that Lizzie's done the wrong thing. And, you know, she says she's a headstrong, foolish girl and that she'll soon persuade her into it. And Mr Collins says that if she's liable to such defects of character, she could not contribute much to my felicity. <laughs> I just find that, that sort of little response there really, really mm. funny.
1: Though I think in terms of comedy, that... That is almost overshadowed by the following scene, which is where she takes Elizabeth to Mr. Bennet and yeah, yes. she says what's happened and Mr. Bennet has his wonderful line about an unhappy prospect is before you, yes. Elizabeth. You must be estranged from one of your parents. And that line actually makes it into, I think, every adaptation there
0: is or some variation right. Yes, Everyone oh, loves oh, that. I, know. I think that's probably the favourite quote you would have. But I still felt... When this happens, it is just so terribly funny that she's rushing in, I'll I'll get her to marry you, don't worry, I'll sort it all out. And Mr Collins is stepping back and thinking, well, look, do I really want to marry a headstrong, foolish girl?
1: And of course, once it's all settled, then from Mrs Bennet's perspective, Mr Collins can just, since he so easily switched from Jane to Elizabeth, he should also be able to easily switch from Elizabeth to Mary. And it does say that Mary... Would have actually been very open to it.
0: Yes. Well, I mean that brings up something I keep thinking about. You know, you're saying how Mrs. Bennet was trying so hard to get husbands for them, but when you look at it, she she made a terrible mess of it. She put Darcy off Elizabeth, and she by her vulgarity and her portion, her her loud talk, she broke off the sort of Bingley's interest in in Jane. That's her character, her personality, her. Breeding or lack thereof, and again, but she didn't do the right thing. Yeah. She didn't register that the girls were not going to take to Mr. Collins, yeah. but Mary might. Yeah, and she could perfectly easily, if she'd been a bit more careful, switched from Jane to Mary. Yeah, very serious girl, make a really good clergyman's mm. wife, that sort of thing. Yeah, I,
1: I think that's absolutely the case, and I think possibly the only reason she didn't think that is because of this thing of you start with the eldest and you work your way down. And, you know, it's actually possibly a bit unusual. In fact, Lady Catherine says so, that all five girls were oh, out yes. at once.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, and then I and mean, one of the things that, talking about the Lucases, the younger Lucas girls feel they'll be able to come out a few years mm. earlier than they would otherwise have been yeah, able to. Yeah. So I think, again, it's just in this path of
1: thought that, you get the first one married, then you get the second one married, then you get the third one married. Mary is probably
0: well, Mary 17 looks like or 18. Tougher. Yeah, but she looks like the toughest nut to get married. Yeah, is that too.
1: I think if it hadn't been for Charlotte Lucas... Nipping Mr. in. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Mr Collins would have actually then proposed to Mary.
0: Well, he didn't have much time left. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I found myself sort of admiring Mr Collins. He's so determined to do the right thing, you know, and he's worked it out that in terms of the old sorts of marriage proposal, he's doing the right thing in keeping the property together, keeping the family line going. If he marries one of those girls, then he will have done his duty by the property. And he's sort of quite dignified when he says to them, I'm sorry about that. Mm. And when they say, no, Mrs... Bennett is saying, I'll, I'll get her to do it. Him saying, no, he doesn't really want that. Mm. And the other point I've got is the sort of narrative form. You know, she starts off with the funny stuff about Mr. Collins. Mm. Then that break, the Collins plot, then breaks off, sort of in the middle, before Charlotte's married to him, to discuss Jane's love affair. Mm. And also, I'm fascinated the way it's narrated. The main the story is carried on very largely in letters. There are these two letters, the one from Miss Bingley explaining how they're leaving and then the one from Jane when she's in London saying how she's now disenchanted with Miss Bingley. Mm. But there they are,
1: both in letters. So last time I said I thought I'd read some suggestion that Pride and Prejudice might have been an epistolatory novel in its original first impressions format... Um, Since then, I've been rereading the introduction to my old Penguin edition of Pride and Prejudice, the 1980s one with the orange spine, and that was where I read it, and it wasn't based on any actual historical evidence, it was just people theorising because of the number of letters
0: that were in the book. Oh, yes, well that makes very good sense, because you certainly become particularly in this period when Jane's in London and Elizabeth's still at home, you do get the impression that everything is being that she's found excuses for telling everything, mm. and then of course, well, we haven't come up to it, but Darcy's letter, yeah, to Elizabeth mm. you mentioned the size of the letters, but you can see the point of putting in Mr. Collins's letter because that's giving you his personality and all the reasons why Elizabeth would never, never <laughs> never, but when it moves to to these ones, all it really the letters really do is turn. Miss Bingley from a sort of a comic character into an evil character, yeah. but there's that to and froing mm-hmm. there, and suddenly from this day by day, we've moved into this long period with the gardeners and. Although I was interested that
1: it's actually, it's very precisely timetabled. Oh, um, completely. I've, I wrote this down, um, Mr. Col- so yeah, moving back into the earlier chapters. Mr Collins arrived on Monday, November 18th to leave the Saturday Senite following. And I looked it up. This means it was either 1811 or possibly 1805 or not 1816. (laughs) So let's say it's probably 1811. Yes. And then the the Netherfield ball is on the 26th of November. We learn that much later when Bingley talks about it, which is the Tuesday that Mr Collins is there. So if he's leaving the Saturday Senite following, that means he's going to be, he's missing one Sunday. Giving the sermon, but he'll be back for the second one. So he's staying just under a fortnight. Yes. Um, So he's there for the Netherfield Ball on the 26th. He proposes to Elizabeth on Wednesday, which is November the 27th, the day after the ball. Then he leaves on the Saturday, the 30th. His letter of thanks arrives on December 3rd, the Tuesday, And he returns Monday fortnight. I got a bit confused there as to whether that would be December 16th or December 23rd, but I decided it's probably December 16th, which would then mean he leaves on Saturday, December 21st. The gardeners are coming for Christmas, so they arrive on Monday, December 23rd. They stay a week, so they leave around the 29th or 30th. Mr Collins returns soon after, and his wedding day is on a Thursday, which is therefore Sometime in January, either the 2nd, the 9th, the 16th or the 23rd. But it's very, very timetabled into all these
0: little chunks of time. Yes, and included in those has to be suddenly the reintroduction of the Wickham plot too, because she talks to her aunt about Wickham and that sort of thing. Yes.
1: And then you also get that after a week in London, Jane visits Miss Bingley, so that would be around about the 7th of January. And then Miss Bingley visits Jane after either three or four weeks after Jane's visit. So that's approximately the 21st of January or the 4th of February.
0: Yeah, oh, yes. I mean, it is. It's very precise. Mm. And that's what, well, I suppose you're saying that's why she has to have this intertwining yeah. of, of events and she skips from one to another Yeah. in this passage. But it's fine. I mean, it is. if you think about it objectively, it looks very jerky. Yeah. When you read it. Yeah. It comes through beautifully. Mm. All the transitions are done superbly. I, I haven't analysed them, <laughs> but they obviously are because you'd never think that unless you settled down yeah. and looked at all these different things yeah. happening.
1: Oh, Another thing I wanted to comment on is that Mr Bennet, he says to Elizabeth quite casually that, oh, I see your sister has been crossed in love. Yes. It doesn't seem that fast that she's actually unhappy. No, no. <laughs> but another thing that struck me in, in that passage is that he says in there that Elizabeth should also be crossed in love and Wickham would jilt you creditably. Yes. So to me that suggests he's got a pretty clear picture of what Wickham is really like. Do you think so? Um, hi, oh, Well, this is what I wonder. Later on, Elizabeth says to Mrs Gardiner, my father, however, is partial to Mr Wickham. Yes. And I guess I just felt the comment about him... He's a pleasant fellow and would jilt you creditably. Yes. So I suppose you could take it either way that he
0: thinks Wickham he genuinely thinks Wickham is a pleasant fellow. I think I think that's what I think. Uh I think he thinks Wickham is I mean he could just as easily say that about Bingley. You know, he was a pleasant fellow, but you know. Mm. I guess
1: I just find it um hard to believe that Mr Bennett, who's also very perceptive about people, doesn't see through Wickham.
0: But then, nobody yeah. sees through
1: Wickham. Yeah. Oh yes, it's just a small thing, but it crops up a couple of times. When Mrs. Bennet tells Elizabeth she insists that Elizabeth stay and hear what Mr. Collins has to say, it says Elizabeth would not oppose such an injunction. It's taken absolutely as a matter of course that you, you have this level of respect for your... Well, you at least obey your parents. If they yes. tell you you must do something, then you do it. Like it says... Lizzie, I insist upon your staying and hearing Mr Collins and she won't oppose that. But then later when Mrs Bennet insists that she marry Mr Collins, she will will resist. So I guess it's that difference between the social interaction where you do show respect for your parents and setting up the rest of your life where
0: personal needs matter more. I've got a, have got managed to build up what I think is quite a good picture of this whole question of obedience to parents by reading Charlotte Young, who was another Anglican, but not born till Jane Austen died, but it becomes, it is quite a serious theme that runs through her novels, Mm -hmm. is what obedience is owed to parents and what isn't. And what Charlotte Young seems to come up with is that you are bound to obey your parents and if you asked her it would be because of the, the commandment of honouring thy father and thy mother and also because of the piece in the catechism about you know, obeying your elders and betters. But the picture I get is you are not obliged to obey your parents if they tell you to do something wrong particularly, of course, although she doesn't say it, if they told you to murder somebody, but also if they're trying to persuade you to do something a bit dicey financially. Mm -hmm. And also, which fits in very well with Jane Austen, I think one of the things that she feels quite strongly about is your parents cannot order you to marry somebody. You're perfectly entitled, as as much as if they told you to murder, to refuse to marry. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand... There are all sorts of things that you'd like to do and could be legitimate even if you want to do something as noble as be a missionary or as personally self-fulfilling as being a painter or a writer. You've got to take notice of your parents and put their wishes ahead even if you think their wishes are wrong and of course you must never marry without their consent Mm. but they cannot force you to. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think that's an important distinction you can't marry the person they don't want you to marry, but you don't have to marry the person they do want you to marry.
0: Yes, but that all the way goes all the way back to why when Mrs Bennett says you must do this, Elizabeth, she doesn't. I don't know if Lydia would stick by that, <laughs> but by and large the rest of them probably do. It mm. comes up very clearly again in Mansfield Park where Sir Thomas thinks she ought to be marrying Mr Crawford. and there's no way she'll marry Mr Crawford. Mm. On the other hand, if he says, you've got to live with Aunt Norris, she'd do it. Mm. <laughs> it's again, she sees it as a moral principle not to marry a man that mm. you don't respect properly. Yeah. Oh, another thing we should um,
1: possibly talk about, also connected to the marriage thing, is Wickham's pursuit of Miss King. Aunt Gardner is telling Elizabeth it would be very imprudent of her to fall in love with Wickham. And Elizabeth says, but then why do you later criticize Wickham for being mercenary when he's going yes. somewhere that where it is financially prudent? I uh, guess
0: the the big difference there is the falling in love side of things. I suppose what I, I think that's sort of partly joking. That Elizabeth has got her saying to herself, I must not let myself be affected by this. Yep. So she's finding a, a joke to cover it up. Yeah. Okay. Whereas she would disapprove. Mm. And she's hurt. Mm there's no way she's going to let anyone see she's hurt. Yeah. Did
1: you have favourite sentence from the chapter? I think we've both ended up deciding not to do the classic Mr Bennet line about you must henceforth be a stranger to one of your parents.
0: Yes. Well, the one I chose was the one, you know, when Sir William comes to visit and tells the Bennets that Charlotte is engaged to Mr Collins and Lydia says, he can't be, he can't be. He wants to marry Lizzie and the author writes... Nothing less than the complacence of a courtier could have borne without anger such treatment. But Sir William's good breeding carried him through it all. And though he begged leave to be positive as to the truth of his information, he listened to all their impertinence with the most forbearing courtesy. And I love that particularly because it's this really ironic, funny sentence, but it comes in between two completely straightforward narrative sentences. She's able to move from the narrative sentence to the ironic sentence to the narrative sentence Mm. in that smooth way. Mm. Anyway, what about yours?
1: Well, I found a couple I liked, but the one I've decided to go for, and it's talking about Mr Collins and Charlotte thinking there wouldn't be enough time to bring him to a proposal before (laughs) because he leaves so soon. And it says, but here she did injustice to the fire and independence of his character, for it led him to escape out of Longbourn House the next morning with admirable slyness and hasten to Lucas Lodge to throw himself at her feet. Yes. Which is very funny, but also some of the words chosen, you know, escaping and then admirable
0: slyness. Yes. There,
1: there is that element of, you know, it's actually quite deceptive what he's doing.
0: Yes. Well, an- another mark against Mr. Collins. Yes. <laughs> um. That he's snuck away like that.
1: The character we've decided to talk about in more detail this week is Charlotte Lucas, who, of course, will become Charlotte Collins. Yes, and I think we're
0: both more on Charlotte's side than on Elizabeth's side on the rightness of her that decision.
1: There is an element of criticism of her by the author as well in just in some of the language that's used. Oh, yes. Um, I mean,
0: Jane Austen doesn't approve of her doing yeah. it,
1: really. Not at the beginning. Yeah. No, because it says... That Charlotte's kindness extended farther than Elizabeth had any conception of. Its object was nothing else than to secure her from any return of Mister. Collins's addresses by engaging them towards herself. Such was Miss Lucas's scheme, which, which is, is a
0: lovely—a lovely comic sentence. Yeah. Yes. So that matches up
1: with what I said earlier about Mr. Collins's admirable slyness in sneaking out. Yes. Um, So that's sort of quite critical. I also love the picture it gives that um, when she sees him coming, she instantly sets out to meet him accidentally in the lane. Yes. Which, of course, later on is what Darcy is doing when he knows where Elizabeth is walking. Yes. (laughs) He's um, placing himself in a position where he can accidentally meet her. Yes. It took me a while to come up with the right word for this, but the one I've decided on is I think Charlotte's approach to Mr. Collins and to marriage is quite clinical. Yes. She's completely, completely divorced the concept of happiness from the marriage. I mean, you know, Mr. Collins is mouthing the words happiness and doesn't himself realise that he's not really believing them because he's, I think, just taking it on. Charlotte has absolutely drawn a line and says the happiness she will get out of this will be the establishment. It will not be the relationship, because it later says that she accepted him solely from the pure and disinterested desire of an establishment. So that's why she's happy to get married quite soon. But then, Mr. Collins, to be sure, was neither sensible nor agreeable. His society was irksome and his attachment to her must be imaginary. But still, he would be her husband. Without thinking highly of either men or matrimony, marriage had always been her object it was the only provision for well-educated young women of small fortune and however uncertain of giving happiness must be their pleasantest preservation from want. It's a very very, I would like to say cynical
0: but I'm not so cynical. Oh, it's not cynical, no. uh, But it it is very clinical. Yes. No, she's just facing what she believes are facts and they are facts. Yeah. And I think Jane Austen doesn't disagree. Yeah. Yeah. And, And she's not asking for sympathy. She's
1: just, this is the decision she's made and she's not going to take any
0: sympathy or criticism. Yes. She's doing what she's doing. Yes, but it isn't really, it seems to me, as foolish as all that. No. No, but taking Mr Collins, he may be all those things that are dreadful, but he's got some pluses. Mm. Apart from the the financial pluses, she's seen enough of him, and I think she gets a, a fairly good picture of somebody who's probably manipulable but particularly I think what she gets is somebody who's trying to do the right thing mm. he's silly the way he goes on about Lady Catherine but he's principled this is I'm a clergyman this is what a clergyman should do I will do it mm. I am on the entail for the Bennetts estate perhaps it isn't fair to the Bennetts so I will try and do something mm. about it she must realize he's going to be manageable mm she's come after all from a background where you've got Sir William there I mean it's not going to be much harder to put up with Mr Collins than it was to put up with Sir William I mean he must have been a terrible bore and a pain and she she had to listen to him and of course we'll later
1: see that she controls the household yes she determines how much time she will spend
0: with Mr Collins yeah and I'm sure she's smart enough to never argue with him Mm. but to make statements that he could sort of see, oh yes, that might be true. Mm. If she says, Lady Catherine would think this and this, oh yes, Mr. Collins would say she probably would. Mm. <laughs> yes. And that basically, he is a principled young man.
1: Mm.
0: Yes. And He's not an intelligent
1: young man. He is quite foolish and he is going to be embarrassing. I would say, in public, more embarrassing than her father is. Probably. But. Yes. She will have some level of control. She's not going to do a Mr Bennett and just step back and laugh
0: at him. No. She's gone into this as well, her job. And she's going to manage him. And you know, and the other thing, she's she already knows he's not avaricious. He's not money grubbing. Mm. You know, he likes to spend money appropriately to his position. And if she tells him this spending is appropriate to position, he'll probably believe her. Mm. He's very malleable. Mm. Even though it's not like any other principled person in Jane Austen, he's principled. Yeah. And in fact,
1: it says of Mary that she might have been prevailed on to accept him. There was a solidity in his reflections which often struck her. And though by no means so clever as herself, She thought that if encouraged to read and improve himself by such an example as hers, he might become a very agreeable companion. Now, I don't think Charlotte necessarily thinks along those lines, but what you're saying is a similar sort of thing. That that Charlotte Charlotte could... What Mary thought she could do it,
0: but Charlotte Charlotte absolutely can. can.
1: Yes. And the other thing, of course, is, as we know by the end of the book, there will be children, so even if she can't love Mr Collins, she can certainly love her children. She's also... She's got her household, she's got her poultry...
0: And she's truly done quite well. Yeah. And even Jane Bennett makes that remark just before Elizabeth is really coming down on her. Mm. But she says, oh, she probably doesn't think as badly of him as you do, mm. which is probably true.
1: Yeah. Yeah, when she's defending herself, she says, I am not romantic, you know, I never was. I ask only a comfortable home. And considering Mr. Collins's character, connection and situation in life, I am convinced that my chance of happiness with him is as fair as most people can boast on entering the marriage state. So I think that that is one thing that's um, kind of a bit sad, is that Charlotte doesn't seem to believe in love.
0: Well, she doesn't believe anyone will love her. I um, think that's will fall in no, love with Well, when,
1: but when she says as fair as most people can boast, I think she, she just
0: genuinely doesn't believe that love in marriage exists. Well, on the other hand, she mightn't have seen anyone much she could fall in love with, given the... The society she, <laughs> well, yeah.
1: she's and, grown up with. And maybe the marriages she's seen. Yes. No, we've got... There's been nothing really to suggest that Sir William and Lady Lucas oh, in any are unhappy. They're fine, um, yes. One thing, though, if marriage had always been her object, she's 27 years old. It's taken her a long time to actually get someone to propose to her. Yes. And there must have been... I don't think we get told of any of the other young men in the neighbourhood, but they presumably exist... Yes. So she uses all this sort of scheming and strategy to get Mr. Collins in the space of a few days. What's what's happened in the past, let's say the past 10 years since
0: she was 17? Yes, has she done anything like that? And anyway, I'm sure everything turns out all right. She ends up at Longbourn. Of course, one thing, the
1: whole way through, everyone says, Mr. Collins will get Longbourn when Mr. Bennett dies. Strictly speaking, Mr. Collins is only the heir presumptive, not the heir apparent, because if Mrs. Bennet dies, Mr. Bennet could marry again someone younger and have
0: a son. Well, actually, yes. (laughs) Because I'm sure he's not too old to sire children. Oh, no, no. And he could probably get another young wife. Oh, no, very possible.
1: I mean, what what? what about a future where Mariah Lucas marries
0: Mr. (laughs) Bennet? Or indeed Miss King. No, why would Miss King bother? She's got her 10,000 and young yeah. officers. Mm. Yeah. yeah, No
1: one ever, ever raises that as a possibility. It's just a given that Mr Collins will inherit the state, not Mr Collins will probably might inherit. inherit no, it's, I think it's more than might. I think it's... Lydia is 15. It seems extremely unlikely Mrs Bennett is going to have any more children. So there's nothing to suggest Mrs Bennett is going to die anytime soon. But it's still within the bounds of possibility. Because I would have thought the most likely reason for Mrs. Bennett to predecease Mr. Bennett would be to die in childbirth. And that's not happening anytime soon. Oh,
0: but all sorts of things could happen. There are diseases, there's carriage accidents, yeah. there's, <laughs> there's food poisoning. Yeah. Well, what I thought I'd talk about in the little historical background bit this time is the idea of the marriage market. I mean, if there's one thing we are very clear about in Pride and Prejudice is that arranged marriages are now considered not appropriate. In fact, there were quite a lot of plays being written at that stage where they were contrasting the wickedness of continental arranged marriages with the lovely freedom of English marriages. And by arranged marriages, you mean the parents are arranging it and the... (laughs) The daughter or son is just and told they both you are have marrying. to do what they wanted. But what has comes clear in *Pride and Prejudice* is the situation is now that men have a free choice in their marriage partner, and they make the first move. But because of this, there are quite a lot of girls and their mothers who are doing everything they can to put themselves out for it, and there are lots of jokes about it now. This marriage market only turns up in fiction, in modern fiction. So you mean the term was used
1: in the 20th century to describe the 19th century but may not have been actually used in the
0: 19th century? I'm not absolutely sure that the term marriage market was contemporary with Jane Austen, but it's certainly the case that it was happening the way Marianne, in Sense and Sensibility, disapproves of people using phrases like setting their cap at or making a conquest. This was just part of the generally accepted language that this is what people are doing. But no proper social historians have looked at it. Whereas the move from the man having to marry whoever his parents chose to being able to choose himself, that's been back in the 1970s. Two major historians started looking at that and they say it happened sometime in the middle of the 19th century and they're giving names. They were saying it's mainly a change in people's sensibility. There's somebody called Lawrence Stone who said what had, they'd move from obedience to their parents to something that was the family was now built on what he called effective individualism which means everybody thinks about it there's been some discussion that says he got bits of that wrong but basically that's what he said and then there was another person at around the same time called edward shorter who wrote a book on the history of marriage and he notices the same the same phenomenon but he calls it a result of the sort of the broad change in attitudes that started to glorify what was called sensibility, where you've got, in literature, you've got Lawrence Stern writing A Sentimental Journey. There was a very popular book called The Man of Feeling that appeared about, you know, in the middle of the century. And even the way Rousseau wrote, he thought feelings were important, feelings mattered. And, oh, and one of the things that's occurred to me when I was looking earlier at all that talk about marriage and happiness. I kept being reminded of the American Declaration of Independence, which was drawn up just after Jane Austen was born, but which has, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And one of them is the God-given right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm. Just the same as all these men are wanting when they go into marriage, in pursuit of happiness. And that just seems to me part of this surge, the surge of sentiment that Shorter was talking about. And so in our looking at what's happening in Pride and Prejudice, we've got the first half of what I described, that men have the right to go out and to choose their own wives to ask women to marry them. What it doesn't tell you anything about is why you've got the marriage market, and I wondered, did those two things develop side by side or did one precede the other? And I haven't ever done much research on this, but what I thought I'd do to look for it is I went back to you know the beginning of the century to when Addison and Steele were writing The Spectator and see if they have anything about the marriage market and girls chasing men. Not a whisper. On the other hand, what they are very strong against is these heiress-hunting men, the ones who sort of find vulnerable young girls and invite them to go off to Gretna Green with them. Like Wickham? Yes, Wickham's probably pretty representative of the (laughs) type, Okay, But I've never heard of a a husband-hunter before you get to the Jane Austen period. I haven't read enough of the, the literature to know if it turns up in any plays and things. And, of course, someone...
1: Writing about Jane Austen as a young girl described her as the silliest, prettiest, most affected husband-hunting butterfly.
0: Yes, and so it was very much something that was done. And so this is something that I'm feeling. Of course, you get this change in sensibility, which then creates a situation where there are all these men who've got their own freedom to look around and choose the girls they want. And so what do all the girls who are looking for a good a good marriage do? They and their mothers start doing more and more to put themselves in contact with young men. All the girls are now getting accomplishments so they can turn into lovely, entertaining wives. And I'm pretty sure this is when this whole business of the coming out and the debutantes and the presentation at court and all these little country towns, they're building assembly rooms and having these subscription assembly balls and parents are organising garden parties and picnics and that sort of thing. And I think this is what's happened. You've had, first of all, the young men are able to choose, then the girls put themselves out to be chosen and the whole society modifies its forms of socialisation to include opportunities for these girls. Of course, the sensibility thing as a concept,
1: Jane Austen criticises that in her juvenilia. There's that, I forget which
0: story it's in, someone swoons and then someone else swoons. (laughs) I think it's Leslie Castle, where the two heroines faint alternately on the sofa. (laughs) You know, she was so aware of all the sensibility in the gothic and all those things. Yeah. And she was very funny about them mm. in her um, juvenilia. Mm. It is this whole background of the change, the surge of sentiment, mm-hmm. which brought this effective individualism into the family. Mm. But basically, these people who wrote about that didn't take it the next step and say, all right, the young men were proposing. What were the girls doing? The girls were chasing them. <laughs> and that then continues right through the 19th century. Do you find that plausible, that yeah, account? It
1: sounds plausible to me.
0: And have you ever come on across anybody explaining that particular transition? No. Or read anything that contradicts yeah. it? No. That Though could... I guess the other
1: side of it was the sense that this sensibility also developed into a rise of the idea that it was fine and wonderful and romantic to marry for love but the actual practice was still to marry for an establishment and Jane Austen is perhaps one of the first novelists where you actually see it being presented not just as it being wonderful to marry for love but it actually being almost morally improper to marry not for love.
0: Well, I have a feeling that this is the case so I can't quite prove it. You can find earlier ones, one of the mid-18th century plays where the squire says to his daughter, I would never force you to marry against your liking, mm. which is a bit different from saying it's wrong to marry if mm. you're not in love. Yeah. And I think somewhere in between that's switched over to the moral imperative. Yeah. Which I find there to quite an extraordinary extent in Jane Austen. Mm. <laughs>
1: A few things I wanted to talk about with the pop culture adaptations in relation to these few chapters. One interesting thing is with the miniseries where they choose to make the break. In the original publication, volume one finished and volume two started in these chapters we've just been looking at. And that break happened just before Jane received the letter that the Bingley's were settled in London. Hmm. So it's after Mr. Collins' proposal to Elizabeth and also after his acceptance by Charlotte. So the 1980 miniseries, the one with David Rintel and Elizabeth Garvey, that has episode two finishing with Elizabeth promising Mrs Gardner that she won't fall in love with Wickham. Um, And another interesting thing in that one is you saw Mr Collins heading off to propose to Charlotte, and he looked super furtive when he was doing that. That really fitted in with some of those words Jane Austen used about the sneakiness of it all. By contrast, the 1995 miniseries, the one with Jennifer Ely and Colin Firth, in that one, episode two finishes with the fallout after Elizabeth has refused Mr. Collins. The final scene is Charlotte arriving to pay a call and Kitty and Lydia telling her what happened, so she arranges for Mr. Collins to be invited over to Lucas Lodge. And the episode finishes with Mrs. Bennet waving him off. But before that, when Kitty and Lydia have told her about it, there's a close-up of her face and you can kind of see she's scheming something. Yes. I'm not sure if it's enough for people who hadn't read the book to actually realise what's going to come in the next episode or not. Yes. Although there's a fair chance when it was shown on the ABC here, they always showed previews of the next episode which gave away key plot points every time. All right. <laughs> um, and so in that version, it actually completely skipped the whole... Scene of Mr. Collins sneaking out to propose to Charlotte because episode three started with Kitty and Lydia coming racing in to say, "You'll never guess what's happened! Mr. Collins has proposed to Charlotte and she's accepted him," <laughs> which is sort of unlike in the book where Charlotte is very firm that she has to be the one to tell Elizabeth. Yes, um, in both in that miniseries and also in the Bollywood Bride and Prejudice, I think it's the Lydia character who comes and tells them what's happened. And, of course, in both cases, Mrs. Bennet is extremely unhappy. Yes. Now, another thing that I noticed in both miniseries version is that Mr. Bennet very clearly sees straight through Wickham right from the start. He is under no illusions about Mr. Wickham.
0: Which makes more sense. Yes.
1: (laughs) And there's even a nice little scene in the 1995 one with Jennifer Ely where... She has said to Mr Wickham, I'd like you to to come and meet my family. And he comes for for dinner or for tea or something, then he leaves. And Mr Bennett sort of says his misfortunes have been very great and he spoke so eloquently about them. And then Elizabeth gets all hot and bothered and says how he has been used disgracefully by Mr Darcy. And Mr Bennett says, oh, yes, I'm sure. But then perhaps when we know more, we will realise that Mr Darcy has been no worse than any other young man with too much money. (laughs) So, yeah, he's obviously... Completely, um, yes. Completely sees through Wickham, which and goes against
0: what Jane Austen
1: actually says about Elizabeth. Says her father likes Wickham. Yes, yeah.
0: Um, would she know?
1: Well, see, would she, or is she in fact allowing her partiality for Wickham to actually misread her father? Could be the
0: case. Yes. And
1: there's a couple of things that really strike me in the 2005 movie with Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadgen in relation to these chapters. One of them is the Mr Collins proposal scene. They've done this arguably a bit heavy-handed thing with the camera angles during that scene because the actor they've cast for Mr Collins is very very short. Unlike where in the book he's described as quite tall, he's very he's a very very short man. And in the in the proposal scene they have basically switched camera angles so you have him looking up at Elizabeth and it's over her shoulder and she's so much taller than him and is really (laughs) emphasising. And I think it's not just emphasising the difference in height but perhaps also emphasising the difference in how much we like them. Yes, (laughs) yes. But another thing that happens in this scene, and it's one of the things I particularly dislike about this movie version is that after the proposal, they open the door and Mrs. Bennet and some of the girls have been listening outside the door. Yeah. And that happens a couple of times in the movie. And just because you know from Sense and Sensibility how morally repugnant Jane Austen finds the concept of listening at doors, it just really annoys me. I know it's done for comic effect. I know it's funny, but it just so it feels so alien to what I see as one of Jane Austen's fundamental principles that it really bothers me. In both of the mini series, that clinical aspect of Charlotte that I talked about that continues to come through. You just see that she's not asking for sympathy; she's just she's doing what she's doing for valid and good reasons. And in fact, in the end, after you, the visit to Hunsford, you kind of can see that she's making it work, which is fine. And
0: the actresses fair. I mean, they're fairly good actresses in both these series, are they? Doing Charlotte? Yes, I think so. Um, the one in. The, the first one in 1980,
1: she is. She actually subsequently plays Eleanor Dashwood when they do a sense of sensibility. Oh, right. um, she's maybe slightly less attractive than the Elizabeth actress. The one in the 1995 miniseries, she's, she comes across as very mature and very controlled. Well, that she sounds does, right. Yeah, she does have that clinical aspect. She's not in any way unattractive. She's actually very attractive, but she doesn't have the same verve as Elizabeth. Yes. But what you see in the 2005 movie with Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadgen and also in Bride and Prejudice is you suddenly start to get a bit more empathy for Charlotte in the the 2005 movie when she's talking to Elizabeth she explicitly talks about not wanting to be a burden to her parents and in fact she says, I'm frightened and then she says, don't judge me Lizzie, don't you dare judge me Oh that's and lovely. It, it's yes. lovely. And it's also and that is one of the things I like about this two thousand and five version because I I commented last time about the little scenes giving you a bit of sympathy for Mary and Mr. Bennett holding her when she's crying and showing Mr. Collins feeling a little bit alone in the world. It gives this sense of almost loneliness and creating empathy for these characters. Yeah, The the characters that
0: are presented not in that way in the book, and I think that works very successfully. What you've said is all those things sound absolutely true about those characters, even if Jane Austen doesn't say it. Her degree of characterisation allows a producer to move off in those directions without being in any
1: way untrue. Oh, I do think Mary crying in Mr Bennet's arms saying, I've been practising that piece all week, that is not something I see... As quite true to the characters, but I do like this way of giving you a bit of empathy for them, actually seeing them as people, not yes. just as comic creations. On the other hand, what this movie also does, which I don't like and I'm going to talk about in more detail in future weeks, is they do the same sort of thing with Mr. Darcy. And I think Matthew McFadden's performance is of a lovely, engaging, really enjoyable romantic hero who, in many occasions, has very little to do with the character Jane Austen wrote. I love his performance, but I don't see it as Darcy. And yes. I'm going to probably talk about that a bit more some when, other time. Well, but, 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 well, with, but I think that is just, it's all part of the same thing and it works really well for these minor characters and for me, not at all well for... I can't even say it doesn't work well for Darcy because it does. It just
0: takes it too far from the book for me. Yeah, But in a sort of a way, of course, the way Pride and Prejudice is written, there's all that potential for the reader. Mm. As a reader... You, do, you know you believe in everyone enough so you're continually tracing them a bit further into their into their lives mm. she's given you an outline mm. which you can fill in really mm. extremely well yeah you're likely mm. to think to round out those characters mm. yeah
1: although the way Charlotte is rounded out I think they Again, they bring more emotion to it. In the book, you've got this clinical analysis of she needs to get married to get an establishment. What you don't get in the book, but they do give you in the film, and as you say, it, it is a completely legitimate extrapolation from the book, I think, is that concept of her being frightened. Yes. Because she probably is. She's 27. She needs to get married. She's got younger sisters who are...
0: Who, gen- who are... Yeah, yeah.
1: So who she will. probably, frankly, she probably is frightened. But you don't get that in the book. You get her just as cool and calculating. And also, as I said, I really liked her saying, don't judge me, Lizzie, don't you dare judge me. The passion in the way she says that, whereas in the book there's this much more unemotional, I was never romantic. I think my chances of happiness are as good as anyone else's. But but
0: there's plenty of preparation for that, don't judge me, Mm -hmm. where it says that the one thing that was really holding her back Was worry about what Elizabeth would think. Yes, yeah. So plenty of justification. Mm, Yeah. You
1: get a similar sort of thing in Bride and Prejudice, not straight away there, but later on when they go to visit them in America, because there's going to be a second wedding out there. And she actually says to Elizabeth at one point that she acknowledges that he's foolish, but she said, but he adores me. Yes. And again, that's kind of nice. You just get that little bit of extra, as it turns them a little bit more into people. which I think is quite nice and one other thing I wanted to say about Bride and Prejudice and of course being Bollywood it's got song and dance in it as well because that's the key of Bollywood although it's not really completely Bollywood but my absolute favorite song in it is one that comes up after Mr Collins has arrived when they know he's going to propose to Lolita the Elizabeth character, they have this gorgeous song called No Life Without Wife, which, <laughs> because that's something Mr. Mr. Collins' character, who's called Mr. Coley, that's something he has said to them, that he's not happy because he doesn't have a wife. This is a, a song that is less Bollywood and more, the director said she was actually inspired by the pyjama scene in the movie Grease, because what you have is that the Jane character the Mary character, and the Lydia character, there is no Kitty character, all come into the Elizabeth character's bedroom and they sing this song about how she's going to have to marry Mr Coley. (laughs) Yeah, she sings about how she wants a man who'll love her. It's just, it's a lovely song. It's bouncy, it's boppy, it's really funny. But I just think that is one of of my favourite bits in the movie and I'm going to try and put a link to a YouTube version of it in the show notes. All right. We had a comment on the last episode from my partner, Michael. It was when we talked about why the officers were responding to a 15-year-old Lydia, and you said they'd be quite young, only in the early 20s. Michael actually said if they're ensigns, they might even only be 15 or 16 themselves. Which is, by the way, we don't know ever what rank Mr. Denny has. I did a search, he's only ever referred to as Mr. Denny. Wickham says he's getting a lieutenancy. But Wickham is never referred to as Lieutenant Wickham, just as Mr Wickham. Denny is never referred to as, as anything except Mr Denny. He can't be a captain because um, Captain Carter is referred to as a captain. So Denny must also be a lieutenant or maybe even an ensign. And I wonder what Chamberlain is. Well, well it, if, it, they uh, are only four, if they are only 15 or 16, it becomes something much more believable that they dress Chamberlain in women's clothes.
0: Yes, yes, I mean, it, it, could, it could very well be. That makes it very explicable. Mm. That they suddenly boost the girls, and the girls realise how flirtatious they can be. And yeah. Mm. Yes, that makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Look, even if they're nineteen or twenty, they're still pretty young. Yeah. A nineteen-year-old can be rather taken with a flirty little fifteen-year-old, yeah. particularly if she looks more. Yeah. Which she's tall and she's
1: she's no. described as stout. Which yes. let's she sounds yes, curvy. <laughs> yes.
0: Which mean, Yes, but it just means she's robust. Or... Yeah. You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet. And me, Ellen. We'll be back next time for chapters 27 to 34 of Pride and Prejudice. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the sacred text and the summarise
1: in a sentence concept was adapted from E.L. Konigsberg's book Silent to the Bone. Our
0: Music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneausten.com You can email us at readingjaneausten.com
1: or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.